You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. Um, My name is Lindsay Pratt. I've been attending Free City for about a year now, since last August, and um, I serve with kids. I guess I'm in fourth and fifth graders now, and I do tear down and stuff around here, but um, I'll be reading the scripture this morning. It's from Matthew 5, 11 through 16, and that can be found on page 760 of the hardback Bibles under some of those seats. Matthew 5, 11 through 16. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, just another Sunday to gather and worship you, and thank you that we um, are able to do that uh, freely and that you've provided a space to do that. Um, We just are so grateful for Central and, um, yeah, the use of this space. And just also want to pray for this school, for all who work here and attend here. And, um, yeah, Lord, I just pray that you'd be working powerfully in the lives of everyone in these halls that you would give us opportunities to um, just to love the students and faculty well and um, yeah Lord just that uh, more and more there would be people here who who know you and who know the life that is found in you and the peace that you give and that that would um, yeah that it would just spread and bring life and light um, in this place, and also just as we come to hear from your word, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to just hear what you want us to hear, Lord. Um, Yeah, just be with Casey as he brings your word, and um, I pray that we would all take it to heart, and um, God, that there would be good fruit uh, in our lives, that we truly would be salt and light, and um, yeah, that we glorify you, and I'll pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm a, one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm working at Growing a Beard. Um, yeah, I, uh, actually, it was like maybe three years ago, um, I was working on Growing a Beard, and uh, a, a young lady in the hall, I was talking to her, and she was like, yeah, you know, it's coming in really gray. And, uh, and I said, no, 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 I mean, it, it's sun bleach. It's kind of red and blonde. And then, and then, I went home and I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh my gosh, that is really great. I also excommunicated her, so she, uh... <laughs> you know, we gather every week uh, because this is one outflow of the way that we exist to extend the glory of God uh, by making disciples by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And, and so we come, you know, our goal every Sunday is that this, that we would just remind you of things that you may already know, but your hearts are so prone to forget that we would maybe teach you something you didn't know, that we would look to the scriptures and we would say, what does it look like to hold this as a truer reality than the seat that I'm sitting in? That there is a kingdom of God among us, growing around us, that is here and is going to take hold of everything one day. What does that mean? How does it affect the way we live right now? You know, when we talk about uh, liturgy and the, the scriptures that we read, the prayers that we pray, the songs that we see, the, the sermons uh, that, that we preach, you know, our goal is, man, we want to incline your heart toward repentance by showing you a beautiful Jesus that every week that you wouldn't walk out necessarily knowing exactly the, you know, the three main points, and there are three main points that we have, but that, not that you would necessarily just know those things, but that there would be a moment that you would see something illuminate in the scriptures, something would touch you like on the heart level, and you would say, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That, 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 that moment, the Holy Spirit would just lean you just a little bit and there would be something in your heart that you would loosen, that you would let go of. Like, not that saying it's not important, it might be very important, but it has less of a grip on you than the Holy Spirit of God that's made possible because of the work of Jesus for you. We want changed lives by the power of the gospel. And if you've been a Christian for years and years and years, like that is still happening every time the gospel takes stronger hold on us. It, it causes us to hold things a little bit more loosely. And I, I, I want to talk about two things, um, and they'll be kind of funny, but not super funny. First off, when it comes to parking, we want you to hold parking around here a little bit more loosely. Um, there's, we have some parking spots up here and uh, if you're like able-bodied or you don't have like uh, a baby in like a car seat, you, you, you shouldn't park there. Um, you should park somewhere else. Um, I, we, every once in a while, I'll see a mom. She's got like two kids. She's trying to keep them from dying in the street. And she's holding like a car seat. And uh, I don't know where she parked. Like she parked like at home and just walked here. Um, so just be mindful of that. <clears throat> I mean, be mindful, like, oh, man, I could park on the street. And if you are parking on the street, man, just be mindful that people live there and, uh, like, they may not love that you park on their street. And so be cheery and, like, smile at people and don't park, like, in front of their driveway, like, even a little bit in front of their driveway. That's wrong. Like, even just a little bit is wrong. Uh, be mindful, like, if Jesus had a car and he didn't, he had a donkey, well, he borrowed a donkey, he would park differently, Okay. And so be mindful of that. And then every once in a while, we also remind this. And so, you know, when we talk about um, generosity every week, um, you know, we, we, we put that out there that this is a way that you show trust in God. And I just want you to know that when, when the scriptures talk about generosity, about you giving of your treasure, it's not that God wants something from you. It's actually that he wants something for you. Like we don't know how much like our things have a grip on us until we offer them. And so the, the New Testament church, uh, like this, the, this church, uh, we exist uh, or we pay bills and pay for things like this and pay people by the generosity of our people. And so eight years ago when we planted, um, they were like, hey, you need to be careful if you reach young people, they don't have any money. And we heard it, like we heard it, 
But we didn't necessarily believe it, and they were right. You don't have much money. Um, but we, I just wanna, like, sometimes we just gotta say, hey, we don't have a rich benefactor. If you're a rich benefactor, we will take the benefacting. And so you can be our benefactor. Uh, but man, God has been so gracious to us um, over the years uh, by people giving of themselves of what they have um, to support just the local mission of Free City Church. And so every once in a while, we just remind people of that. Um, and so you've been reminded. Last week, man, we started the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is actually like Matthew is painting a picture that you would see something from the Old Testament unfolding before us in the life of Jesus. And so the same way that Moses went up a mountain to get the word of God and brought it down in the form of the Ten Commandments, and then that unfolded in the Levitical law that, you know, that was passed down, like in the same way we see Jesus go up on a hill and sit down and teach the words of God. And if you look at it, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he deals with a lot of like the Ten Commandments where he talks about murder and lying and adultery. Like he deals with a lot of that. And what he does is he just ratchets it up. He says, man, it's actually way harder than what you think, but it's way better than you could ever dream. And so Jesus is is better than Moses. He is the better Moses that tells us what God is like because Jesus didn't just walk up a mountain to meet with God. Jesus left the heavens to be God because he was God and he joined us to tell us what God is like to provide a way for us. And so we started with the Beatitudes, blessed are, and we saw all those things unfold. And, you know, Ethan, man, so good. Like he kind of said, hey, this, this word, this McElroy's word, you know, it could be translated. Because sometimes when we say blessed, you know, we kind of have a more like ceremonial idea. And, or, or maybe like a, you know, like kind of a non-sincere idea. Like if you grew up in the South and people say bless your heart, they don't mean bless your heart. They don't mean that. And so sometimes it feels a little bit too ceremonial. And so sometimes like some ways you could translate, you know, it could be fortunate are you if you see this happening inside. Or happy is your situation when you see this kind of heart change. And so if verses one through 10 is describing how we get a relationship with God, God stepping out of the heavens, touching your heart, changing something inside of you, changing something inside of you that makes a happy situation, not in happenstance, but blessed are you, fortunate are you, happy is your situation when you realize you can be connected to the God of the universe. Some of those things, like in verses three through six, like it's talking about if you see need inside of your heart, if you look inside and you see a bankruptcy inside that you don't have enough to earn God's affection, or if you see a hunger and thirsting growing, so poverty of spirit, if you see a sadness, like you see some of these words, like a sadness about sin inside of your life and outside of you, God is doing something in you. And then what happens is then you start to see something flow out of you in verses 7, 8, and 9. And so in 7, 8, and 9, you start to see a growing inner character of the people who follow after Jesus, the people who are in Jesus' kingdom. Like they start to have mercy for one another in verse 7. 
They start to grow in a purity of heart. That means an undivided heart. Like it starts to be my yes or yes, my no's or no's. It starts to say, man, I don't have to chase after everything. Something starts to grow and take grip on the inside. And then in verse nine, it says, peacemaker. You start looking to make peace around you because you have peace with God, the ultimate peace. That's what the people of God look like. And it's growing, like we don't look perfectly like that. It's growing inside of us as the Holy Spirit is taking more ground from us. But it takes us from this world, you know, this kingdom into a different kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, which has different norms and different customs. And that's where we start to follow the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if the first 10 verses of the Sermon on the Mount are how you have a relationship with Jesus, the rest of chapter five, the rest of chapter six, the rest of chapter seven of the Sermon on the Mount is what your relationship will be like with the world. And, and so if you, if you look at this, like verse one through 10 describes what it takes to have a relationship with God. But for the rest of Jesus' sermon, like we see this pattern, he shifts and he says, man, if you live according to the kingdom, then you're gonna have like a chasm grow between you and the world. Like there's gonna be some difficulty And so you see kind of a a pattern in the sermon, this very short introduction, this is how you get in, and then this long expanding of this is what you should expect. And we see patterns. Like if you've been reading um, in the Bible reading plan, we just kind of finished 1 Corinthians, and then we keep moving, and there's a pattern to Paul's letters. Like Paul's letters almost always follows this. He starts off, he's like, grace to you. And then he says, I thank God for you. And then he explains the gospel. He says, hold fast to the gospel. And then he has a section where he says, for the love of everything holy, stop being dumb. Stop doing what you're doing. And then he says, hey, Timothy says hi. And then he just kind of ends. <laughs> and so there's a pattern. We start off with this, blessed are you. Happy is a situation if you see inner change that can only be accounted by the God of the universe stepping in. And then we see a difference where the rest of Chapter five, six, and seven says what a Christian's relationship with the world would be like. So if verses one through 10 is about a growing truth in you, the rest of Matthew five, six, and seven is about a growing truth about you. And Jesus, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you ready. Jesus is gonna meddle with your life here. He wants to talk about your relationships. He wants to talk about how you speak, the truth that you hold. He wants to talk about how you hold money, sex, anger, what you do when you've been wronged. He wants to talk about the general disposition of how you feel when things don't go your way. He wants to talk about your daily life and how the gospel unfolds in you. He is gonna say that the inner growth he wants to do in you will result in a growing chasm with the world outside of you. In verses 11 through 16, Jesus is gonna say that if you live at all, if you live at all in line with his kingdom values, you will find that the world will revel you, revel you, revel, unveil, (laughs) will revel you, will persecute you, will lie about you. And what he's gonna tell, these are the three points. If you live like salt, you see that in verse 13. If you live like light, you see that in verse 14 through 16. 
you will be hurt. You see that in verse 11. Now, I, I know that um, usually I just go in order, and so we could start with hurt, and then we could say salt and pepper. And I know that if you were born before 2000, when I say salt and pepper, you think about the band, and you want to say, ah, push it. Um, and the rest of you don't even know what that is. I actually made that reference for my U8 girls soccer team. Um, we were talking about striking the ball. I was like, no, we're not striking now. You just push the ball. And then I said, push it real good. And they just looked at me. But I heard some parents on the sideline. They go, ah, oh, push it. And I was like, those are my people. <laughs> but so here's the point. Salt, light, hurt. Verse 13, it says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And, and so the first picture that Jesus says, he says, hey, the people who follow me, my people are like salt. Christians are, are people who push back decay with the flavor of real life. Like, Jesus uses the picture of salt to say something about the flavor of his followers, something about how we taste, what we're like, and then something about the effects of our lives. And so there's two things. Like, salt does, I'm sure, a lot of things. I mean, too much of it will, will kill you. Don't apply that. That's different. Too much of Jesus won't kill you. Well, you might be martyred, but it's good. Um, but so, like, it says really two things. It talks about the flavor of our life and it talks about a preservative effect of our lives. And so the first, salt is used to flavor food. Like there is a flavor of life among God's people. Like you add salt to food to make it taste better. Like can you imagine green beans without salt? No, it's awful. That's what rabbits eat. Humans are not meant to eat that, like without salt. And so you add salt and it's better. And then if you add garlic and bacon, it is like a trinity effect on top of, of green beans. And it just makes it all better. But it starts with salt. Like you gotta start with Jesus. You know, it starts with salt. And right now, some of you guys are like, man, I, I don't ever eat green beans. You, you might die, Okay. You know, you, you got to add these things into your diet. Like it, right now, if you're young, you, you know, you, I don't know how it works, but it, it just, it holds together. One day these things are going to loosen and uh, you need all the help you can get. And so like he starts off, he says, there's something about the flavor of my people that brings out the flavor of real life. I am, um, man, this week I, I went to a funeral um, of a friend and um, thinking about the stories that were told. What the stories that were told are stories of what real life tastes like. Like what real life is about. And so the stories that we heard were stories about how much he loved his wife and his kids and how he sacrificed for them. That is the flavor of real life. Or, or the stories of how he lived in generosity. And so many people share stories of how they gave and gave. That is the story of real life coming out. Or, or stories about how he would laugh in hard situations because he believed God was at hand, of Philippians 4, 5. That is the story and flavor of real life. Stories about how he risked because he trusted God was faithful. 
You see, Jesus wants to put the flavor of life, a deeper humanity inside of us. And so he has to cut out some cancer because we have some wrong beliefs about what is good. And it just made me think like the things that we don't hear about in funerals. You know, we don't, we don't come and celebrate, oh man, he was so sneaky. You know, he could get out of every hard situation, always end out on top. Or, or yeah, man, he, he, you know, he always seemed to, as soon as he had relationship problems, just find someone else that just kind of was easier and suited him better. Like, we live for things like that, but we don't treasure things like that. And so Jesus stepped in to bring a flavor of life among his people. Jesus says that there is a flavor that should exist among his people and it has to start on the inside. Like we can fake those things and hold those things and white knuckle some of those things, but there's a way that the gospel steps in and it grows from the inside out. And it's when, just like the song we sang, when you realize, man, I don't bring anything and that's the only thing you can bring to Jesus. And so the first, the picture of salt is there's a flavor. Second, the picture of salt. Salt is used to preserve food. And he's saying there is a preserving effect among God's people. And so like, we don't think about that because we have modern refrigeration. But man, especially when you talk about like meat, without modern refrigeration, things tend to go bad really fast. And I think Jesus is saying something among humanity and among culture. Without God, things tend to go rancid pretty fast. My uh, grandpa Fritz, he um, was visiting when I was a kid. And um, that's actually his nickname. Um, it was Carl Frederick. And in the army, he got nicknamed Fritz because he's in World War II. And I didn't know that until I was like 18. I was like, that's not your name? Oh my gosh. What else, what else have you lied about me to? You know, and... But uh, he was working, fixing something, and he unplugged our deep freeze to plug a drill in, but he never plugged it back in. And we not, it was over Christmas break, we, we left uh, for a little trip, and we came back, and we discovered what the smell of a 40-pound bag of shrimp smells like without modern refrigeration. And it is like, man, you don't just need like a cleaning crew, you need like an exorcist. Like, it was awful. I mean, I still don't order shrimp at restaurants. I mean, I, I'm still haunted by what happened. But what's saying is without preservation, things tend to go bad. See, without the preservation of the gospel at work in our lives and in our community's lives, what we see is people's lives start to fall about, apart. People's lives fall apart in addiction and self-medication and selfishness and distractions. Christians, we're supposed to be preservative for that. You know, marriages and families are crushed by self-love and refusal to take ownership and responsibility. Like Christians, we're supposed to be different. There's a different flavor. There's a preservation of our life because we hope in God and we know that he can work through these type of things. Or schools fall apart or neighbors fall apart or cities and nations fall apart. And Christians are to be a preservative against that kind of decay. When people's lives or communities are falling apart, Christians are supposed to be like salt and move in. And we, we, we've all experienced this. Like you have a friend and their life gets kind of messy. You, you don't feel like you want to move in. You feel like you want to move out. Because you're like, man, that's, that's going to be uncomfortable. 
They're, they're going to need my time. They're, they're going to make calls like late at night and there's going to be desperation and it's going to be messy. Like the tendency is to want to step out. Sometimes there's unhealthy reasons to want to step in. Sometimes we have an unhealthy thing of like I need to be needed or self-righteousness will drive us because we're like, hey, I'm here to help you people. You know, sometimes there's that. But there is a life given and a flavor in the life of someone being transformed by the gospel that believes, believes, like a Colossians 1.17. They've experienced Colossians 1.17 that says, And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so as people transformed by the gospel, we realize that Jesus left heaven to help pull our life back together. And now there is a growing thing inside of us where we want to act like him and we want to be like his hands and feet. And we should enter neighborhoods and schools and people's lives and show how Jesus wants to pull those things back together. And so what we see is Jesus stepped into our world to stop this rancid decay. Jesus steps into our lives to hold them together. He didn't have to enter in, but he did. And so he starts off and he says, there should be a flavor in the lives of people who follow me about an inner rest, an inner work that I'm doing. And there should be a preservation that you offer people. So first, Christians are to be salt. We enter in. Second, Christians are meant to be light. You know, Christians are, are to push back darkness by becoming light themselves because of the work that's happening inside. And so when Jesus references salt, he was trying to say that people in society tend to fall apart. Similarly, when he references light, he's saying that people in society tend to get dark. Like, like we tend to lean and sometimes run toward darkness. And like, I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like I have to give a lot of examples to convince you of this. Like, I, I just don't. Like, like, in history, like, we see so much darkness. We actually have about 500 years that we just called the Dark Ages. But I look at the years before that and the years after it, it doesn't seem a whole lot brighter. Like, we have war and tyranny and just kind of this overall ethic from nation of you have something I want, so I'm willing to kill you to take it. Like we, we look at history and I just don't know if it's all that much different. You know, a couple weeks ago during, during worship, I just kind of, I was reading, you know, this Liberty uh, Memorial and it's here to reference that there, there was, you know, there was a war that was fought and there were several young people who walked halls like this who never returned. We don't have to look deep into history to see darkness. But I think it's also true of the present. Like, is the present less dark? You know, we were all shocked by the war in Ukraine that's still going on, by the way. It just kind of fell out of the news. Like, we were all kind of shocked by it because we didn't know that big nations did that anymore. And they do. You have something I want, I'm willing to kill to take it. There's darkness in the present. Like just think about families fall apart. Addictions ravage people. Could suspicion and mistrust get any worse? And man, what about our excuses? You know, we just, we, we, we carry so many excuses. Man, it's not my fault, you know. I mean, 
this happened to me and horrible things happen and there are ramifications for those things and I'm not making little of that but man I've just I've been stepping into people's lives of friends and even family you know where it's like we, we want to hold the excuse and I'm not saying this is lightly but we want to hold the excuse man my parents messed me up but then we want to leave our families and say man kids are resilient both can't be true like, both can't be true. Like, like we, we step in and, and we just kind of want to hold on to these things. And the truth of the gospel, like the scriptures, want to step in to reform us from the inside out. And so we see darkness in the present. What about the future? Like, if our movies are any indicator that we don't feel good about the future, like, I mean, what do they say? Like, this apocalyptic like theme is all over the place. Like, uh, I mean, I was reading, uh, haven't actually watched, but Snowpiercer, apparently the world dies, and so we just hop on a train and just kind of want to kill each other on the train. It seems unrealistic to me, but apparently people are watching it. Or, or we, we talk about like, like AI, like we develop robots to help us and then they, they, they want to kill us, you know? And so we create technology to make our lives better, but then it turns on us. So we have like iRobot, The Matrix, uh, Skynet in The Terminator, um, you know, I, where's Sarah Connor? You know, I mean, we have that. It seems like our best outcome is like a zombie apocalypse, you know? Like if we stop, we see darkness behind us. We see darkness among us. We see darkness in front of us. And then it seems like this is saying, Jesus, God of the universe saw it too. And so he entered in to start to light some candles. And so as a collective whole, it seems like we're ashamed of the darkness in our past. We are growing weary of the darkness in our present. And we are doubtful of anything maybe getting brighter. And Jesus says that we tend to fall apart or fall into darkness. But look what it says about his followers. Verse 14, it says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do a people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Like Jesus says at least two things. Like we're supposed to carry the light of the kingdom of Jesus that pushes back darkness. And the question is, what does that look like? And in verse 15, it says like individual lives changed by the power of the gospel from the inside out, shining like a lampstand in a dark room. And then it says in verse 14, like if we go right before that, it says it also looks like this, a community of lives changed by the power of the gospel from the inside out, standing out in the surrounding darkness like a city on a hill. And so those pictures, like look at verse 15 again. You know, verse 15, it says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And so you don't put a lamp under a bowl or a basket. Like when Jesus would have said that, the people probably would have snickered, like, oh, that's silly. Who would even do that? Like they would have said, that's ridiculous. You wouldn't light it if you didn't need light, so you wouldn't cover up the light. You would light it to light up the room. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, man, I have lit new life that has a certain flavor that can help hold life together, that helps push back darkness. And I've lit it in individuals so that they light up every room they walk into. 
But, but it's also got a more collective picture. Like look at verse 14. It says, you are light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And so it says, man, you can't hide a city at night. And, and this, it's actually not real common to build a city up on a hill. I mean, I know we have Mount Oread, and I just want to let you know it's actually a hill. It's not really a mountain. But Hill Oread sounds dumb. So it's Mount Oread. But, but Lawrence isn't here because it was like, oh man, the, the hill. It's actually here because in the valley there's a river because water tends to run down and we need it and commerce moves along, river, along rivers. That's the same reason why you have Westport. You have two rivers intersecting and a lot of commerce, water, we need it. And so cities tend to grow not on hills but down low. But it's almost like Jesus saying, but if you saw a hill on a dark night, if you saw a city on a hill in a dark night, would it not shine all over the place? Would not everyone notice it? I, I was watching um, a documentary on uh, Ma- Machu Picchu. Did I say that right, Machu Picchu? Yeah, that's pretty close. Okay, I can't, I, if you shook your head, I can't see you. I, I, it's too bright, but I appreciate the help. Uh, Machu Picchu. And so, you know, it's this incredible, like, it, I mean, they built this huge city. It was cool. It's way high. And, and they're like always talking about, man, it's crazy. We don't know where they went. Like all of a sudden the city was just abandoned. And, you know, at the end of the movie or the documentary, they're kind of talking about, man, it could have been because of disease, you know, because of the Spanish conquest. But the whole show, they talked about how hard it was to get to Machu Picchu, even with modern transportation. And so I found myself wondering, like, at a certain point, did people say, guys, this is ridiculous. Sure, the view is great. But like we go visit family on Thanksgiving and half of us don't come back because we just die on the way. Like remember Billy? I mean, like, I mean, like it's just like that. It's hard. It takes a lot of resources to build a city on a hill. It takes a lot of effort and hard work. But when that city is lit up, it is seen for miles and miles and miles. And I think he's saying something about the, the people of God. Like, man, it does take resources. It does take effort as we forgive one another and confront one another, as we try to put our lives under the scriptures. It, it's hard at times, but there's such joy in it. And it's a countercultural outpost of the kingdom of God that when it's done in such a way, you can see it for miles and miles as it lights up the darkness around it. Like the picture that we see, like a lamp, we are to light up dark rooms. Like a city on a hill, we should stand out on a dark night. And so what makes this possible? And what makes this possible is verses three through 10. So look at it. In verse three, a people who are marked by knowing there's a poverty in spirit, that there's nothing inside of me that just makes me better, that God's gonna love me, something has to change. I have need, or verse four. A people who grieve over personal sin and social sin. Or verse five, those who approach God and man with a palatable meekness. A reasonable, dependable, gentle, controlled lives. Or verse six, a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, fairness, equality, the good of others. Like just being nice. Like we just read 1 Corinthians. I read 1 Corinthians 13 again. And so beautiful passage about love But like the first few words always catch me where it just says, love is patient, 
Love is kind. Like, just stop and think about that. I mean, then it goes on to say all kinds of other stuff. Love is patient and kind. How would that change your relationships? Or, verse 7, those who shine mercy for others because they know they've received mercy from God. Or, verse 8, a sincereness that shines through their lives by an undivided heart. Or, verse 9, those who work hard to make peace. The church is a countercultural outpost shining the values of the coming and growing kingdom of Jesus. We should look different, we should act different, and we should give credit to Jesus constantly because it's what he's doing inside of us as we respond to it. And so look, look in verse 16. Look how some people respond to your light given by God in individual dark rooms or how some people in a community will respond to our collective lights that Jesus put in us, shining in a dark night. It says, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works, something flowing from the inside of you because of what Jesus has done in you, outside of you, making you have a certain flavor, a preservative, a light that pushes back darkness, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It says some people are drawn to it. Like they're looking for a peace that we have. They see an inner longing for mercy inside of them and they're drawn to it. And so it starts off and it says, if you live like salt. It says, if you live like light. You will be hurt. So look at verse 11. So we jump to the beginning, it says, blessed are you. And so this is a beatitude. And so it's usually included into the list of the beatitudes because it is a beatitude. But several of my commentators, it says, man, we need that, that verse. We need this verse 11 and 12 to go both ways because it describes if these things are inside of you, this is the rest of what we're looking at of how there will be change and it includes hurt. And so it's blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so when we see the words like revile you, persecute you, lie about you, they persecuted the prophets, it's all describing things that hurt. And it's saying Christians who will live as salt and light will experience hurt. Christians who live as salt and light will experience hurt. Look at verse 11. It says, blessed are you when. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you. It doesn't say if. It seems to say that if we live in line with this, if the growing change inside of us flows out and we conform our actions and our words and our finances to be in line with what Jesus has done, that there will be persecution and there will be hurt that happens. And so first it says when. Under the reign of King Jesus, 
We see things differently, and that's what the whole, uh, the rest of the sermon is about. We see marriage differently. We see sex differently. We, we see uh, the, our, the way we use words differently. We see the, the commandments of scripture differently. We see the way we interact with other people differently. We see money differently, like it's a growing hold that the kingdom has on us, and it will bring hurt. The second thing in verse 11, it says, Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of things of evil against you falsely on my account. And so it tells us Christians who live as salt and light will be hurt because of Jesus. Like he says, on my account. Now, sometimes we suffer hurt because of our account. Because like we decide we're gonna be right, but we decide we're gonna be right in the wrong way, or we act a certain way. Sometimes we suffer because of our account. Uh, 1 Peter 4, um, the three commentaries that I looked at, they, they all reference 1 Peter 4. And it said this, because Peter says something very, very similar in verse four, verse, or chapter 4, verses 15, 16. It says, but let, not, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. And so it, it says like, hey, there is a suffering that happens. Like you, there's condemnation and persecution when you murder someone. Like it's wrong, don't do it, okay? So there's, there's something that happens there. Or because you stole something. Or because, like it says evildoer, you're just all around evil. Like there is something that happens. Like society says that's dangerous and pushes away. But then it says, or as a meddler. Like this word, it means like kind of a busybody, someone who just kind of stirs up trouble. Sometimes Christians suffer because they're just self-righteous jerks. Like being right in the wrong way, it, 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 you don't get to count this beatitude. And yet it says this, but then it, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God, glorify God in that name. And so Peter's saying the same thing that Jesus is saying. If you live graciously as salt and light, you will suffer hurt. Some will hate you. Some will insult you. Some will lie about you. Some will call you names. And this could go on and on. It even includes some might kill you. But verse 16, we just read, but some will love you. And so if, if, if you find that you are an irritant in literally every place that you go, like you should ask the question, man, am I suffering as a meddler or am I suffering because of Jesus? Because there seems to be a correlation between truth and love that's going to have a little bit of a balance. So we see that Christians will who live as salt and light will be hurt. Christians who live as salt and light will be hurt because of Jesus. Christians who live as salt and light will be hurt like commissioned prophets. Look at verse 12. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so he's referencing Israel's history, and he says, man, we are full of history of we abused the prophets. We martyred the prophets. They stood up and said, hey, listen, this is what God thinks about this situation. This is what God would lead us in this situation. He says, stop doing this and start doing that. And so we see this growing thing and we didn't like it and we pushed against it. And then we get to the end 
of Matthew's gospel with the Great Commission, and it says this in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. It says, go tell everyone everywhere about Jesus. Teach them what Jesus taught and how he lived and how he died and rose from the dead, proving that he was the God-man who entered into humanity to make a way back. Tell them, telling them is the act of being a prophet. Telling them with a message that is the gospel, like it is a countercultural message that will make you stand out like a city on a hill. It declares that God has made a way, but he is the only way. It started when you see the spiritual bankruptcy inside of your soul. It continues when you see a sorrow over your sin and the sin around you. You can be confident when others experience a meekness that's coming from your interactions, when you desire more righteousness, and when there is an overflowing of mercy Mercy in you. And Jesus says, Some will be drawn to you wondering what makes you different, according to verse 16. And he says, But also because of the gospel, because of my account, and because sin is addictive. Meaning, the longer you spend holding sin, the more warped it will make the world around you look, the more individualistic you'll become. And when people try to step in to help you, the more you will hate and revile them. Have you ever loved someone in addiction? And so if all sin is addictive and we have been woken up by the power of the gospel, what we should expect is when we step in to declare something's sin is a little bit of that response. You're trying to take something from me. I'm suspicious of you. Why would you even care? Leave me alone. Christians are to be salt. Christians are to be light. All of us, if we live like that, will experience some hurt. You know, some things that I'm really, really thankful for. And I was reminded of that just in the funeral, just like simple things, like just coming together and eating uh, with people you care about and talking about the day and trying to reconcile those things and figure out how to walk with it. You know, where we talk about the best part of our day and we try to, turn attention to Jesus is good or we talk about the worst part of our day and how it was hard and we try to talk about how Jesus might be working in that but coming to a table gathering around food and light to talk about Jesus at work in our lives we also do that collectively every week when we take communion we we remember that we bring nothing to the table, but only what was started inside of us that Jesus himself did to start new life inside of us. And it should overflow in our lives in such a way that's changing us and making us more salty and making us more like light in our communities and in our family. And we come to a table that is set before us to remind us of how that was made possible. It was the blood of Jesus that was spilt for us. It was the body of Christ that was broken for us. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray as, uh, man, we just get to look at the Sermon on the Mount. We get to see what you taught. We get to interact with you in such a way that it causes us to question some things we do in our life and ask questions about other things around us. But I pray that you would bring a great deal of clarity. 
But Lord, like right now, as we think in this moment when we're gonna step forward in communion, Lord, even just the act of ingesting, taking it in, and how bread and drink would break down in our body, how does the grace of God ingested in us, how does it change us? In just a moment when I'm done praying, uh, we uh, take communion, there'll be instructions up on the screen of how. We also have places behind the black screens for prayer. And if there's something in your life that you just need direction from God, or if there's something in your life, whether bodily, spiritually, or emotionally, that you just need healing from God, man, that might be a great place for you to go because ultimately, it's looking to God and saying, I need something from you inside of me. Lord, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.